Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is New Books in Southeast Asian Studies coming to you via iTunes and the web. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a member of the Institute for Advanced Study, Princeton. Today's guest is Pamela McAulwey, an Associate Professor in Human Ecology at Rutgers University, who is joining us to discuss Forests are Gold, Trees, People and Environmental Rule in Vietnam, published this year, 2016, by the University of Washington Press. Pam, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You've an impressive number of strings to your bow. You've studied political science, anthropology, forestry and environmental science. You've worked in government agencies and as a consultant on international projects as well as in academia. So what brought you through your general research interests to write a book on the political ecology of Vietnam? Well, I've always been interested in environmental issues. That's always been my passion ever since I was young. And so I I journeyed through various academic pathways, but always with an eye towards thinking about environmental policies. So as you mentioned, for a while, I was a political scientist as an undergraduate. Um, That led me to do some policy work for the federal government uh, for a while, for a very short while. Um, But I was always a little bit dissatisfied with that work because I felt like I wanted to dig deeper into why policies often didn't work. And I felt like the the work that I was doing at the time, and this was the first, this was the Clinton White House, the first year um, that they were um, trying to formulate a number of policies on carbon taxes and so forth, and nothing was going anywhere. And so I really felt like maybe I should be in academia and get to dig a little bit deeper into issues rather than bouncing from one policy to the next. And so that's what I did. I went back to school uh, and then got master's and PhD degrees in forestry. And when I was doing my PhD in forestry at Yale, I added a second discipline of anthropology because I always felt like you can't talk about forests and forest policy without dealing with people. So all of those different trajectories have all come together around this idea that environmental policy ultimately has to be about people and their decisions. Uh, And so the various pathways um, that I've taken have led me to write this book uh, about environmental policy in Vietnam. And the, the Vietnam setting is actually very serendipitous. I didn't have a background in Vietnam until I went to do my PhD uh, at Yale, and I was just trying to find a field site where I thought things were interesting and intriguing, and I had an advisor who was interested in Asia and went to Vietnam one summer, and that was that. I decided I'd found my field site. You describe one of the goals in in writing the book um, consistent with your disciplinary backgrounds to bring the concepts of nature and culture back together. What do you mean by that and how do you realize it's in the book? 
Well, this is a big issue that a lot of people are grappling with, this idea that we we call something an environmental policy and it's put kind of off to the side in this box. That's an environmental policy. And then over here in this other box, those are social policies. Uh, and that division of treating the environment as something separate from humans uh, that needs to put in its own disciplinary school, for example, I'm in a school of environmental and biological sciences, but I've always wondered, you know, why do we separate that out? Why is that something different than, say, um, social sciences or natural sciences? So it's always been difficult for me to understand why we think of environmental policy as this this other thing um, rather than thinking of as this holistic um, setting that encompasses everything that we have to deal with, the air we breathe, the places we live, um, the way we make our livings, and so forth. And so there are a lot of people uh, in anthropology, in geography, in, in allied disciplines right now, um, particularly interested in this idea of why do we treat nature and culture as these, these separate concepts. Uh, and there have been a lot of folks who have been theorizing about this for a while, Bruno Latour, probably one of the the best known. Uh, But for my setting in Vietnam, I really wanted to think about a way of writing a sort of environmental history of Vietnam that tried to give equal attention to um, nature and to culture and to try not to treat them as these two separate realms, but rather think of nature as being shaped by culture and vice versa, culture as being shaped by nature. And those two things were inexplicably tied together and you couldn't separate them out if you really um, looked at how deeply they were entwined. Digging a little bit deeper, you also identify a couple of puzzling observations that that led you into the specific research that you undertook that culminated in the book. Um, One that reforestation and deforestation appeared to occur synchronously in, in Vietnam and two that afforestation policies were themselves apparently not aimed at the kinds of goals the environmentalists had in mind. Uh, This second point perhaps going to what you're saying about the need to attend to culture, to political, social and economic objectives. Could you say something about these puzzling observations and, and how they took you into the work that culminated in the book? Absolutely. I mean, the thing that really struck me when I first started working in Vietnam was the fact that there was a massive push by the government to either reforest, that is to put forest in places that had previously had forest before, or to afforest, that is put forest in places where there had not been forests in recent memory. Uh, and this project for reforestation and afforestation was one of the largest development projects in Vietnam at the time I was doing my fieldwork uh, in terms of the total amount of funding that essentially... Um, all told, this 12-year project for reforestation um, received about a billion U.S. dollars, which was an enormous amount of money for a small country like Vietnam. And I was really intrigued by why this was such a high priority, how it was playing out on the ground. Uh, And one of the justifications for this reforestation policy uh, was that Um, Vietnam ought to have forest cover equivalent to what it had been at the end of the colonial era. 
um, which was the 1940s, essentially. Uh, and I found this incredibly curious. Like, why was that the date that we had to somehow magically go back to? Um, you know, why not before the colonial era? Why not some other point in time? Um, and so there were all these interesting social or historical reasons for this reforestation project that nobody seemed to be talking about. Uh, and it was particularly interesting to me as well when the, the reforestation project came to a close in 2010, many people said, well, Vietnam has made this forest transition. And that's a term that people use to talk about the fact that most poorer countries, developing countries, tend to have higher deforestation rates while they're poor and developing. And then they reach a point of middle-classness where they stop deforesting and they start afforesting again or reforesting again. So people were saying, well, it looks like Vietnam has made this transition. So they were deforesting for a while, and now we've had so much uh, reforestation that they've turned the corner, and this is a sign um, that Vietnam is um, potentially becoming a middle-income com- uh, country. And But the more I dug into the figures on this, the more I found this very strange phenomenon, which is, at the same time that Vietnam was doing this 12-year-long reforestation project, there was still massive deforestation going on in other places. So they were afforesting in some areas and deforesting in others. Now, it just so happened that the afforestation happened to be um, more expansive, and so it looked like um, the overall trend was towards afforestation. Um, But nobody who had come up with this forest transition theory had ever speculated on the fact that there might be these two things, afforestation and deforestation, going on at the same time. And so it struck me as being a very odd puzzle and that I, something I should look at um, more systematically. And so I did, and I had the good opportunity to be uh, doing fieldwork in 2001 and 2002 when the money from this national uh, reforestation project came to the local area where I was working. And so I could really kind of follow the money and see where it was going and, and what species were being planted and who was planting these species, um, which was a fabulous opportunity because it gave me a, a, a much more concrete idea of why people were choosing to be involved in this reforestation program. Uh, and what I found was that the government justifications for the reforestation were on paper to regreen the countryside, to expand forest cover, to have biodiversity and um, watershed benefits. Um, but there were a lot of hidden justifications underneath. And so the more I dug, the more I found some of these things. So they included everything from Um, concerns about downstream water supplies for urban users uh, and that these upstream uh, rural dwellers um, should basically sacrifice their land, turn them into forest uh, to protect those water supplies for folks downstream. Um, There was a lot of Uh, political justification for reforestation, local party bosses who owned sawmills or they owned um, companies that sold timber to coal mines where timber is used for pit props to um, basically uh, construct the scaffolding with inside um, coal mines. So all sorts of 
reasons that never came out in public, that were never publicized, but they were definitely there. Uh, and one of the interesting reasons why local people got involved in reforestation was not because they cared about trees that much, but because they were able to get land tenure certificates for any land that they agreed to reforest. And so this was a time when Vietnam was shifting away from uh, collectivized agriculture from state-owned lands, and it was a time where people didn't really know, you know, who owned what piece of land and what authority they had over it. And so, participating in reforestation seemed a very concrete way for people to get what they hoped would be more permanent land tenure certificates. And if they had to put some eucalyptus or some acacia trees on that land for ten or twelve years, well. They would do it with the hopes that maybe later they could do something else with that land because they'd have that land tenure certificate in their hand. So this particular case study of, of the, the underlying reasons why people actually participated in a project that was cast as environmental led me to start questioning lots of environmental policies and, and to kind of come up with this theory that I call environmental rule, which is that Oftentimes, policies that are called environmental actually have much more social or economic or financial or bureaucratic or political reasons underneath. And so it's the job of academics to really dig down and find those true reasons. What are the real reasons why people are planting trees? What are the real reasons why local government officials want to fund these projects? Uh, and when you do that... You're able, I, I hope, to have a clearer picture of why some policies succeed and why some policies fail. Uh, let's break down environmental rule. You describe it as having five elements um, drawn from a couple of different bodies of theory. Can you yeah. unpack it for the listeners? Absolutely. So in the book, I try to think about you know, how, how do policies become cast as environmental uh, and how can we analyze them if there are these ulterior other reasons for policies? So I draw a lot on governmentality theory um, coming from Foucault and other folks since then, um, since him, who have um, basically expounded upon his ideas. And one of the, the key things that Foucault always pointed to was that Bounding a problem is a really important exercise, like setting the boundaries of what constitutes a problem. Uh, and that's very true in the environmental field. So trying to figure out why one thing is an environmental problem but something else isn't uh, is something that I think has been fairly neglected in policy studies. Sometimes policies just sort of um, seem to take for granted that deforestation is a problem. Um, but if we call deforestation by other names, land conversion or um, logging, then we might not see it necessarily as a problem. So figuring out what counts as a problem that needs to be addressed through policy is an important first step. So that's problemization, trying to figure out why something constitutes a problem. Um, and then secondly, we have to generate some form of knowledge about this particular issue or problem. Um, this often involves expertise. So foresters, people who have been professionally trained in forestry, um, uh, are often the key individuals here. 
they're often using various uh, mechanisms to calculate uh, how many trees there are in a certain area, how big those trees are supposed to grow. And it's that knowledge production that often involves things like mapping forests um, or setting up boundary markers and so forth, um, basically constituting a space for which some sort of policy or some sort of intervention will be applied. So then the third step is understanding what an intervention in some environmental problem is going to be. Uh, And these can be widely varied. So in the book, for example, I talk about the reforestation projects. Um, I talk about the creation of protected areas and the use of forest rangers to try to set aside uh, forested areas that are not to be exploited uh, by local populations. Uh, I talk about um, uh, state ownership of forests during the socialist era in which uh, heavy logging was practiced. All of those are different forms of interventions, but they all have in, share in common um, this idea that um, there's some sort of uh, either state or community uh, activity in forests um, that would con- constitute an intervention. Uh, and so then the fourth step comes directly from Foucault and, and studies of governmentality, and, and that is thinking about subjectivity the people for whom this environmental policy is applied to them. How do they internalize it, accept it, go along with it, resist it? Uh, And what are the various tools um, that policy planners use to try to get people to go along with an environmental policy? So this could be everything from education to um, boundary enforcement, to arrests if you're in the wrong place, to confiscation of tools and forest products that you've collected. Um, but all of these are aimed at trying to get people to follow the policy. So I want to understand that, that subjectivity that people themselves have about whether they're going to follow it or not. Um, and then there's a, a fifth step that really comes less from governmentality and more from Um, uh, Bruno Latour and his work on actor network theory, uh, because he talks a lot in that about the importance of networks for translating concepts and ideas uh, and getting other people to be interested in those concepts and ideas. So, for example, if the policy intervention is to have reforestation, and if the underlying reasons are actually to uh, have local party bosses uh, have enough new trees that they can sell and make a big profit, but those guys are not going to be able to get widespread acceptance of this policy just on that basis alone. So they have to enroll other people into supporting their policy. And oftentimes it's those environmental justifications uh, like reforestation being a biodiversity friendly or watershed um, uh, uh, strengthening policy. And that casting uh, of things as environmental serves to then enroll people in a network so that they support that policy. Um, So that's the fifth step is, is really trying to um, spread your ideas, your policy, your intervention more widely through a network uh, and get other people to sign on to it. Uh, And so by going through each of these steps, um, I'm hopeful that we can understand uh, specific policies uh, in more detail.
Uh, and so I try to lay this out as a sort of methodology that other people could potentially use uh, to look at other environmental cases far outside of Vietnam. Great. Thanks for that summation. And of course, for anyone who uh, does get a copy of the book, you can see a really nice uh, laid out uh, diagrammatic form of that, um, of your, your, your approach on page 27 of the introduction. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm sure that by this point, our listeners will have gathered that the book is both a really theoretically sophisticated and it's also tremendously rich and multi-layered in its empirical contents. How, Thank you. Um, how, when and where did you collect the material that you drew upon to write the book? Well, I first started working in Vietnam in 1996, and throughout grad school, I was essentially going back to Vietnam every year. And then I did uh, two and a half years worth of fieldwork um, from 1999 to 2001, uh, and I had originally gone to uh, look at the impacts of uh, migration and the expansion of cash crops, particularly coffee, um, on forest areas uh, in the central highlands of Vietnam. Uh, and so I was there in the central highlands for about six months and had collected some data and then was sort of unceremoniously pushed out by the local authorities. And I didn't know it at the time, but um, there was a lot of ethnic unrest that was about to erupt. And indeed, some big protests um, later erupted in 2001 and 2002. Um, so I was gone by that time because I decided to choose another field site. And I ended up on the north central coast uh, of Vietnam, about 300 kilometers south of Hanoi, um, in this area known as Ha Ting Province. Um, and people who are historians of Southeast Asia or Vietnam will recognize that province as being historically important because it was the site of massive protests against the French colonial authorities uh, in 1930. Uh, this protest movement was known as the Mieteng um, Soviets. Uh, and it's really that movement which gives birth to the Indo-Chinese Communist Party uh, and its future leader, Ho Chi Minh. So it's a very historically important um, province in Vietnam for that reason. Uh, it was also very uh, important and interesting at the time I was there because that particular province had seen the discovery of several new species of mammal uh, in the 1990s, just right before I started doing my field work. And there was a flurry of activity in the province to try to potentially protect these animals by expanding uh, existing protected areas and putting in new protected areas. So it was a great opportunity to see new policies being instituted for forests um, and so I ended up doing field work in Hatting for about a year uh, and then uh, left in end of um, 2001. And since 2001, I uh, have had another sort of series of projects, uh, including uh, some work from 2004 to 2005, where I was back in Vietnam for another year and a half. Uh, working on uh, a variety of projects, particularly related to um, uh, Sweden agriculture, uh, working in, in uh, some more mountainous areas um, of Vietnam and with some ethnic minority communities on uh, why their Sweden agriculture, sometimes called shifting agriculture, the practice of um, uh, doing agriculture within forested areas, um, why that practice was so 
discouraged uh, in terms of policy um, from various successive state governments. So I did a lot of work in 2004 and 2005 on that. And then um, starting in 2008, I did a number of policy interviews um, with some very high-level people. I was very fortunate to get um, some folks at the National Assembly, the retired head of the Forest Protection Department for the entire country, um, a lot of people who work for protected areas, um, to speak with me very frankly about why environmental policy um, so often failed uh, in Vietnam. Uh, And then since 2011, I have been working in a new part of Vietnam, um, back in the Central Highlands, but in the province of um, Lam Dong, which is where the city of Dalat is located, which some listeners may know. Uh, and this new project since 2011 has been looking at policies that have been instituted in the last few years to use the concept of ecosystem services uh, as a organizing principle to protect forests um, and to use payments for these ecosystem services, um, payments that are made directly to people living in forested areas to try to get them to change their forest use practices. So over that span of essentially 20 years, um, I had a chance to look at lots of different types of policies in different areas of Vietnam, um, a mix of really intense ethnographic um, participant observation fieldwork uh, during my uh, dissertation, all the way up to these um, interviews with policymakers later on. Uh, and so I put all of that in the book. It's not a book just about, um, you know, one location and one area of Vietnam. It's really about um, multiple sites and the, the interesting parallels that we see through different periods of history with regard to the types of policies that are directed at force and environmental management. Well, let's go to history and those different types of practices now. And the five enumerated chapters move across uh, how I read it, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, for, broadly speaking, four eras of environmental rule in, in Vietnam or perhaps four regime types, uh, the French colonial period, the post-colonial state socialist era up to 1986, Thereafter, the period of socialist renovation, a euphemism for the turn back towards the marketplace, and subsequently post-renovation, the present era marked by new types of neoliberal calculation, intervention, and subjectivities. Uh, Each of the chapters is packed with fascinating material and insightful interpretations. Um, it's supplemented by detailed maps, photographs, tabulated data, uh, which all of which is obviously involved uh, a huge amount of work on, on your part, as some of which is manifest just from listening to your last response. Um, as much as I'd like to dwell on each of the chapters at length, I think in the interests of time, it'd be great if you could just lead us fairly briskly and skillfully through the stages of environmental rule from the 19th century to the 1990s and tie together what you see as some of the the major threads that run across these periods. And and thereafter, we'll settle down and talk about bold hills and a few other things. Yeah, that sounds great. So essentially what I try to do in the five uh, main chapters is to think about how environmental rule has played out, um, as you point out, in these different historical eras. And so I start with the French colonial era because I think that's really the first time that we see um, serious 
state directed intervention and forests. Um, I, I did some work with some pre-colonial materials and there just wasn't um, that much direct intervention in forest management um, by the emperor uh, and, his, and his bureaucrats. And so it was really first uh, under French colonialism. So this is essentially the 1880s uh, onward that we start to see um, a, a really directed effort um, to establish um, forests as a problematic that need to be solved. And so for each of the chapters, I do those five steps of analyzing environmental rule that I just uh, mentioned. So I try to talk about how was the problem identified and how these problems around forests differed through different eras. So for the French colonial era, the problem that was identified for forests was that quote unquote native practices were contributing to the um, degradation of forests. Um, but what this really meant in practice was that French colonial authorities felt that local wood use was wasteful and that it should be colonial authorities that were able to use high-valued, um, good woods that they could then export and make some uh, earnings off of. So the colonial enterprise in Vietnam was basically enacted on the cheap. Uh, colonial authorities had to kind of fund their own activities. They weren't getting a lot of money from the metropole. So the forestry department that was set up essentially had to fund itself. And so they wanted to be able to institute reserves where they could um, log forests and make money off of them. And they essentially wanted to import the same model of forestry that they used in temperate France. Um, and that is a model where you essentially have spatially delimited forest reserves. You cut a, a little bit of forest each year, you rotate around and you hope in 30 or 40 years, you come back to the place that you started and you've got uh, a tree that's grown back up and is, is ready to be cut again. Um, that model of forestry works in temperate areas where you have one or two species like oak. It works horribly in the tropics where you have hundreds of species in just one or two hectares of land. And what it essentially ends up doing is uh, – wiping out all of the major important um, hardwood species and letting a lot of kind of scrubby softwood species grow up in its stead. And so French colonial authorities were constantly battling with um, the fact that their intervention didn't work. Uh, and But yet they kept trying to apply it and coming up with new justifications for why their vision of forests should be supported. And so they would try to um, persuade other folks outside the forestry realm that they should support these logging reserves. Um, I have a little section in the book where I talk about um, how the first French forest uh, chief uh, tried to get shipping companies to support his plan to, re to reforest and protect um, large areas of land in northern Vietnam. And he made the argument that if those forests weren't protected, there would be siltation in the economically important harbor of Haiphong. And so therefore the shippers should support him. Um, so essentially the French colonial era set up this pattern that was to be repeated over and over and over again of problematizing local use of forests as the thing that was contributing to their um, degradation. When in fact it was actually 
the intervention that the French were putting in place, this this coupe forester, this forestry where you tried to move around uh, and um, uh, hope that the forest grew back up when you were done cutting. And so I really try to look in detail about the fact that these environmental justifications that native practices were degrading uh, were really just the surface. And there were all these other reasons that um, French authorities were interested in managing forestry, a lot of them having to do with with economics and, and having money for their budget. So then after the, the, the first chapter, which is exclusively on the French colonial era, um, I move on to chapter two, which talks about uh, the establishment of uh, large-scale socialism uh, in Vietnam after the conclusion of the Franco-Vietnam War, so after the end of French colonialism. So this is primarily in North Vietnam that I'm talking about post-1945. And the new government, led by Ho Chi Minh, uh, also found forests to be a potential problem for their new government, primarily because uh, North Vietnam at the time uh, was highly uh, concentrated in terms of one small agricultural area, the Red River Delta, and then expansive mountainous forested highland areas. Uh, And so there was real concern on the part of the new authorities that they wouldn't be able to feed everyone on just the agricultural production in the Red River Delta. And so they needed to do quite a few other things to potentially solve this problem that involved moving people from the Red River Delta, having population disbursement, having them go up into the hills. Um, It involved setting up major and massive state logging camps so that timber could be extracted for the new government and sold uh, to have foreign exchange earnings to potentially buy food. Um, There was also the concern that the new state needed to consolidate its border citizenry, um, many of whom were not ethnic Vietnamese. These are ethnic minorities like the Hmong, like the Thai, like the Tay, who live up in these mountainous areas. And there were concerns about their loyalties, to be quite honest. So all of these things came together in the guise of projects for forests and the guise of environmental projects. But they had all of these other social and political um, uh, threads underlying them. So the big intervention that I talk about in Chapter 2 was the establishment of these state-owned logging camps, um, which were extensive. They essentially nationalized and logged out um, massive areas of the highlands of Vietnam. And it's really kind of a hidden history. Not that many people know um, about these logging camps. I think everyone knows pretty well that there was agricultural collectivization uh, during this time period, but there never been anything written about the highland areas and these forest camps, these state logging enterprises. So I interviewed people who had worked in them. I talked to folks, you know, they had to recollect back to these days to the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, to get a sense of what it was like to live in these camps and to work as a laborer, um, essentially taking down trees and and uh, not doing a very good job of reforesting areas, unfortunately. So these state logging camps had, had massive environmental um, implications, um, which could have been predicted if 
there had been a better examination of um, uh, these forest policies, um, if there had been an understanding that the policies were actually not in place to protect the forest, they were in place um, to achieve these other social and political goals like um, consolidating borders and so forth. So then I move on after that to chapter three, where I talk about um, the new opening up, um, the, the post-socialist era, so 1986 on, um, and the fact that this was an era where there was a new sense of having to figure out if you were a citizen in the post-socialist era, what was your role going to be? What was your relationship to the state? Who owned land now? Who was responsible providing social services and so forth? And so um, this was a time when there was a lot of uncertainty um, about who should be in charge of force. Uh, And one of the new policies that the state government put in place uh, was this shift away from logging and more towards environmental protection. So there was a big expansion of protected areas at this time. Um, But it didn't work very well. And one of the reasons that didn't work is because the people that were put in charge of protecting these new reserved areas were often strongly accused of being folks who were actually logging on the side. There was a great deal of corruption um, uh, among forest rangers uh, at this time in this new market economy. And so um, there was a lot of clashes between local folks who had been using forests. They were now excluded from them because they were in protected areas. They saw rangers who were supposed to be protecting the forests not doing that. Uh, And so we had a lot of um, uh, stories in the news about illegal loggers and their nefarious acts. Uh, And rangers, uh, unfortunately, were often the very folks um, who were doing that illegal logging. So it was a a time when there was a lot of upheaval. uh, And uh, the policies put in place to make protected areas um, ended up, in most cases, being what we call paper parks. They were just kind of on paper, but there was not that much um, protection on the ground. Um, So that sort of leads into what I talk about in Chapter 4, which is the reforestation projects um, that we've spoken about before. Um, And a lot of these were aimed at trying to um, uh, on the surface, raise the amount of forested land cover um, back up to uh, a time that had been uh, previous in, in Vietnam's history. But as I mentioned, there were all these other social and economic reasons for afforestation as well. And one of the big problems that I saw when I was on the ground watching these projects roll out uh, was the fact that poor people um, were often not included in afforestation projects because they were considered to not have sufficient labor or capital or enthusiasm. And so what actually ended up happening was the reforestation projects uh, ended up increasing inequality of land holdings between rich and poor, um, which was not an objective at all, but it was an unintended outcome um, of that project. And so I conclude the book then in Chapter 5 with looking um, at new, uh, more market-oriented environmental policies. Some folks call these neoliberal policies. Uh, In this case, though, uh, I would argue that there's still very heavy state involvement. They're not 
exclusively projects for privatization. Uh, and what these new approaches do is essentially try to treat the environment, treat ecosystem services um, as a product that can be marketed and paid for. So they have an element of neoliberal um, economy in them, but there's still a very heavy role for the state because the state sets up these payment exchanges. Um, the state is involved in determining who and uh, that pays money for these ecosystem services, who gets the money and so forth. Um, and what I end up arguing in this chapter is that although on the surface, these payments for ecosystem services policies may seem like something new, something um, neoliberal or some sort of market approach, but they share in common uh, very fundamental similarities with these previous eras uh, a forest policy. And so uh, I use the, the, the sort of five steps of environmental rule to look at these payments for environmental services uh, approaches and show how they share uh, a great deal in common in terms of how they problematize um, issues around forestry, how they um, apply an intervention, um, and then how they try to enroll uh, other folks into supporting these, these um, policies, even though oftentimes underlying them are non-environmental reasons. And as I explained in Chapter 5, one of the um, big things that's been going on with payments for environmental services is actually a bureaucratic fight um, between two different ministries in Vietnam. So the Environment Ministry or the Forestry Ministry is trying to get money um, from the much richer and much more powerful um, Ministry of Industry and Trade, which um, uh, is involved with hydropower uh, selling and licensing. And so by asking people who use water to generate hydropower to then pay money to upstream forest uh, protectors, uh, it's essentially a transfer of money from a more wealthy ministry to a slightly poorer ministry. So that's an underlying reason that's not environmental at all, um, but these Policies for ecosystem services are often called environmental policies, and I argue that um, they're actually not that at all, and that they they have a much more political element to them. So those are the, the sort of key case studies, the the different eras um, that I go through in the book, and then in the end, I um, try to sum up by saying that you know even though we talk about these historical eras as being so politically different from French colonialism to um, state socialism to this post socialist era. It's really remarkable how similar policies for force have been throughout all those eras. Um, despite the political differences between them, um, the fundamental approach, this thing that I'm calling environmental rule, um, essentially goes on through all those eras. Right, and, and one of the one of the themes which you've already pointed to clearly, but that, that struck me as a reader, is the relationship between the political and economic reasons and how they're presented, uh, sometimes in ecological terms. Um, and this seems to go back a long way into the state socialist period. You talk about how the basic goal was really the creation of new citizens from mm-hmm. forest work rather than the protection of forests themselves. But it's in the, the latter chapters that um, it becomes really uh, remarkably pronounced and, and very interesting. And one aspect of the, the fourth chapter that I'd like to dwell on briefly, if possible, is um, this notion of a classification of bare hills, because yeah. it's a particularly uh, illuminating uh, way, I think, of, of illustrating this point that, uh, that, that there are these purportedly 
Bear Hills, inverted commas, and yet, as you point out so powerfully, in fact, of course, they're not bear, and the consequences of classing them as bear are um, sometimes perverse. So could you say something more about that aspect of the fourth chapter? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a concern, actually, going back to the French era of um, much of Vietnam being bare, being wasteland, being these bare hills. Uh, and one of the things that that language does is it basically creates a justification for reforestation, right? If you call something bare, you essentially are saying you potentially want it to be unbare. You want it to have trees on it. You want to have something on it. Um, and what I do in the fourth chapter is show uh, through statistics and through maps and so forth and through interviews um, with folks living around these bare hills and also through doing some transect work of my own where I actually went out with tape measures and I counted all the species um, that were on some of these bare hills. And all of those different types of evidence show very clearly that in most of these cases where land is being called bare, it absolutely has vegetative cover on it. And sometimes it's tree cover. It's crazy. Um, so the idea of there being a bare hill is a political classification. It has nothing to do with the actual ecology on the ground. Um, and what calling a piece of land a bare hill does politically is it sets up a justification for there to be this intervention, um, an afforestation project or um, placing a protected area or doing something with the land um, that is extra local in most cases. And so the, the justification for this massive reforestation project um, in the late 1990s uh, and up to 2010 uh, was targeted, it was called the 5 million hectare reforestation project. And it was targeted at 5 million hectares of land uh, of which the vast majority of those 5 million hectares were called these bare hills. But there were actually lands that people were using that there was actually vegetation growing on. So in some cases, a bare hill might be someone's pasture. It might be their swidden field. It might be a locally managed um, village common uh, where women collect non-timber forest products like broom grasses or medicinal plants to both use and sell. That essentially there were a lot of seemingly invisible users of these bare hills. But what the classification then set in motion were these interventions, these reforestation projects, which then ended up alienating large swaths of these bare hills and transferring them to middle class and wealthier households. Because in order to participate in this reforestation project, you had to agree to um, take oftentimes mostly free seedlings. You didn't have to put out too much money. You would get these free seedlings. You would get some fertilizer, but you had to expend your own family's labor um, to clear the land and plant these trees. But in return, you would then get a land tenure certificate that said you were in charge of these trees. You had the right to sell them, and it entitled you to use that land um, for at least 20 to 50 years, um, depending on where you were. So... Many people, as I said, willingly alienated lands that had previously been either village managed or had belonged to poor people or might have been open access but was managed at least somewhat nominally um, by folks that were using it. Um, and the big losers of this process were poor people who ended up not being able to 
um, get their place in line for the reforestation project money. Um, and often women were also losers of this project as well um, because they women were oftentimes the users of these not very visible forest products like broom grasses. Broom grasses, these are just very simple grasses that people use to make um, house brooms. And they don't sell for very much, right? People were making maybe a dollar or two um, every few days when they collected broom grasses. It didn't seem like it was a very important um, source of income. But it was very important for women who didn't have um, other sources of pocket money, for example. So women could go out, collect some broom grasses um, for a few days, a month, sell them, have an extra 5 or $10 in their pocket, which they could use to buy school supplies for their children or buy, save them, buy a bicycle for their child or pay school fees and so forth. So when women lost access to this small these small sums of money, um, it was really unfortunate because what ended up happening when these um, lands were turned into um, uh, afforestation zones, they were often planted with acacias and eucalyptus, uh, which are both exotic species um, from Australia. They are not species that women prefer for fuel wood. Um, Both of them are considered very poor um, for fuel wood. Uh, And so women were not that interested in these new forest plantations. They didn't, they would provide the labor um, if their household had this land. But the trees on that land were usually the husbands. So women lost access to their pocket money and then men were in charge of these new species, um, which were often sold for um, uh, either low-value timber for garden furniture or they were sold for um, pulp for paper factories. So it was uh, it was really an unfortunate process, and it was one that was entirely avoidable if people had, ahead of time, understood more clearly that these bare hills were not, neither bare nor were they abandoned and unused, um, that they were very much used. Uh, and a project that, for example, um, focused on natural regeneration, maybe letting the local species um, uh, continue to thrive, maybe some um, targeted plantings of local species within those natural regeneration areas. Um, that would have been a strategy that would have kept the availability of these other forest products like broom grasses. Uh, it wouldn't have led to this overdetermined focus on exotic species, which are not very high value. Um, but that wasn't the policy choice that was made. And so I, I talk in this chapter about the fact that essentially problematizing that first step as there being an issue with Bear Hills set into motion these other steps of assuming there's no owners, assuming no one's using it, assuming it should be reforested, assuming it should be reforested with a very fast-growing species. And the end result was something that we probably all could have predicted um, and was unfortunate for women uh, and poor folks in particular, as I say. Now, someone from abroad may come and look at these hills covered with uh, eucalypts and acacias and maybe see an Australian expert walking around Yes. And, um, and conclude, perhaps see some uh, signs with the World Food Program logo and uh, perhaps conclude with a rather dim view of globalization that this is just some kind of neoliberal imposition 
of an economic valuation approach. But you say that, in fact, it needs to be understood as a relational idea that has become incorporated into multiple agendas and thus internalized and indigenized. Right. Um, how so, uh, briefly, and with what implications before we close? Well, there's there's been a big issue with plantations, particularly plantations of exotic species in other areas of the world, particularly Latin America. There have been a lot of protests, um, for example, against large-scale eucalyptus um, plantations in places um, like Brazil and Chile. Uh, and one of the reasons why those protests – well, there's multiple reasons for those protests. The, the trees themselves are – for example, uh, often very environmentally unsound. They tend to be um, uh, water hogs. Uh, They often tend to be very vulnerable to storms. They blow over very quickly. Um, So when they're taken outside of the setting of Australia, they tend not to be as as hardy and and useful a species um, as they are in their homeland. And so that's been one argument against them. Uh, But another big argument in these other countries outside of Vietnam has been that these plantations are often owned by large corporations, Um, you know, perhaps a a paper factory itself will own these large scale, multiple hundred or thousand hectares of land, which are then um, planted with these trees. What's happened in Vietnam um, has not been that. So these plantations that have spread out are not large scale ones. They're household plantations. So we're talking about anywhere from two to maybe maximum, you know, five or 10 hectares um, per household. Uh, And they're not owned by these corporations. They're owned, the land is owned, um, at least nominally with these land tenure certificates by individual households. So on one hand, we might look at that and say, great, that's an example of um, they're continuing to be a strong role for smallholders and they're um, continuing to hang on to this land and they're not being kicked off in favor of corporations. That seems like a good thing. Um, but that's looking at the, the issue from the lens of 2016 rather than the lens of the year 2000 when I first saw this project go in. Um, and I saw the people who were poor not having access to these plantations. A lot of those poor people have since left. They have migrated to cities. They didn't have a chance to um, really make a living in these areas that have now been given over to forest plantations. How many of them there are like that? We'll never know. Um, But that's what I mean about the the plantations themselves have been not a neoliberal imposition from the West, um, but they've been locally taken up and incorporated uh, in these villages Uh, And people have done so willingly. Uh, And it it may seem strange. Like, why would someone willingly uh, appropriate a neighbor's land or a village common? Why would you do that? Um, And I argue in the book that one of the reasons why it became easy to do that um, was the fact that this national reforestation uh, program cast the afforestation project in terms of what I might call righteous citizenship, that good citizens were citizens that planted trees. And if you planted trees, you could accumulate benefits for your household, sure, but it was also accumulating benefits for the nation. And you would get these propaganda posters and these education campaigns and newspaper articles that all talked about how important and patriotic it is to plant trees. These were often connected back to Ho Chi Minh himself, who 
was known to have started a tree planting program in the 1960s. And so by casting it in these very nationalistic, citizen-oriented terms, uh, I think it enabled a lot of people to kind of skate over the fact that they were stealing land from their neighbors. They were appropriating village commons. Um, but it was because it was for this national good that they were able to do it with less fuss and protests that they might have um, encountered otherwise. So there weren't these protests um, that we see in Latin America against plantations. Those didn't happen in Vietnam because who, who would you protest against? It was your neighbor that was planting the acacia. It wasn't some faceless corporation that had come in. Um, so it made the situation very complicated. Um, but what I try to argue in the book is that by casting these afforestation projects in these environmental terms, it enabled people to claim land, which is something they wanted to do anyway at this time of uncertainty, um, but cast that claiming in terms of being a good citizen, not being a land grabber, but being a good citizen. Um, and so that was a big part of the story. Um, and so I use on the cover of the book, actually, a propaganda poster um, encouraging people to plant trees uh, as an example of this sort of nationalistic rhetoric about um, using the environment, but actually having these underlying reasons um, why these programs were actually in place. I'm so glad you've mentioned the cover illustration because it really does capture beautifully many of the features, the contents of the book, including in some small details that I'll leave listeners to look for themselves. Um, it would also be remiss, I think, as you've mentioned him a number of times, not to note that uh, Ho Chi Minh was, um, you, well, you attribute the title of the book to him, but again, uh, listeners are going to have to take a look in, into the book and, and learn more about uh, the specific way in which um, his reference to forests of gold has been used over subsequent periods. Uh, Pam, the, the book has just come out, and so it might be premature to ask, but um, what are you working on now, and what can we look forward to from you next? Well, I have um, some material from the time that I was collecting all this work on forestry um, about animals um, and biodiversity. So the creatures that live in forests um, and they did not find a home in this book. Um, and I'm hoping to be able to use some of that material um, in a new book that I'm working on, which is really about humans and animals in the Anthropocene um, in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And what I'm trying to look at is uh, how human animal dynamics have changed um, over time. So it's going to be a bit of a historical track, just like this book has been, um, and look at changing dynamics over time. So uh, everything from the elephant trade that was very important uh, in Southeast Asia um, uh, several centuries ago um, up to the present day where I'm looking at um, new techniques to try to potentially um, save or bring back some of the endangered species in the region. And so I've got a case study of the Siamese crocodile, which is uh, uh, functionally extinct in the wild in Vietnam, um, but is massively raised in captivity 
and used for selling crocodile skins to the European fashion industry. So it, it brings in globalization and, and neoliberal uh, economics and uh, lots of things as well into the story um, in the contemporary times as well. So that's one of the new projects. Um, and then I'm, I'm continuing to work on ecosystem services as well. And I'm hopeful that um, I will um, uh, potentially be able to do a comparative project on ecosystem services, particularly watershed and river services, um, looking at the Red River in Vietnam and potentially the Irrawaddy um, River in um, Burma, Myanmar. So that's a, a longer term project, um, not really off the ground yet, more conceptual at this point. But it's something that I think is um, potentially uh, exciting that I hope to pursue. Well, in the meantime, I look forward to reading about the Siamese crocodile and, um, and yeah, indeed, uh, the comparative project sounds fascinating as well. Um, Pam McElwee, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today about forests of gold, trees, people and environmental rule in Vietnam. Congratulations on the book and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Nick, for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I look forward to having you with us next time. And until then, why not check out a copy of Pam's book as well as all of the other great New Books Network channels like the New Books in Environmental Studies channel where this episode will be cross-posted. Hey, I see you at the tender boat. Monkey!